All right, wonderful. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, we thank you for the gift and the grace of the church and the sacraments specifically. The ability to pray to you, the ability to encounter you. We ask that we would receive that grace even tonight as we listen. Through Christ our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, welcome back. This is session five of the Living the Faith series. This session, session five, is um, prayer one, the sacramental life. As always, let's do a little recap, though. Remember, we're, we're doing this, and the series derives its name from uh, the whole purpose for what's going on here. The purpose of human life is to know, love, and serve God in this life so we can be happy with him in the next. We've talked about that many times before. We're designed to become saints. You know, it's not something that would kind of be nice or be amazing. It's like, no, that's actually how we're designed. And being a saint is just the real you minus brokenness and evil. It's just letting God heal us and letting him kick the evil out of our lives. We become saints by actually living our faith. That's why we call it living the faith. Okay, and so this series helps us concretely do that. Session two, we talked about the importance to uh, be reconciled to everybody. We should have regular confessions going in our life. I recommend once a month, at least, and at some point in our life to have done a general confession or a whole life confession, to have just gotten everything out of the way so that we know after that day, our Lord has applied the infinite power of his blood to our entire past. That's really helpful. We also talked about in session three, uh, getting healed and the fact that all of us are wounded in some sort of way in our intellect and our will and our passion. So it messes with our thoughts and our, our choices and our feelings. And we get wounded by parents and lovers and friends and enemies and our own selves and whatnot. And so we have to stop and recognize that God wants to heal us. And so we simply just have to let him do that. And we ask for that healing and cut off anything and anyone that would be an obstacle to it. Last time we talked about uh, deliverance and uh, attaining spiritual freedom. There really is spiritual evil. There really is a devil and demons and whatnot. They're not red. They don't have tails and pitchforks, anything like that. They're people. You know, they're, they're people who are purely spiritual. They only have a spiritual nature, no physical body. And they want nothing more than to uh, interrupt us in living our faith so that we don't go to heaven. And they're constantly working and planning and plotting um, to do that. That happens through the world, through the flesh, through the devil. So we experience four main categories, not all of us, but you can experience four main categories, temptation, oppression, obsession, and possession, which is um, quite rare. So we got to look for uh, the entry points in how evil is affecting us so that we can ask the Lord to get rid of that stuff inside of us. It involves living a holy life, most basically, but going to confession regularly, using the name of Jesus, pursuing healing, cutting unholy soul ties, maybe deliverance prayer, if we need it, and some other interventions. The core of that, of all of that, is what we're talking about 
in this session, an aspect of what we're talking about it, living a holy life. To live a holy life really necessitates one thing, constant contact with God, consistent contact with God. You hear me say it all the time, say it at home, if you can hear me, daily prayer, weekly mass, monthly confession. Right? So it's prayer, both personal and sacramental, that keeps us spiritually connected, spiritually alive. Tonight, we want to talk about that second kind, sacramental prayer. To do that, we got to go all the way back to what the church is. Because if we don't understand what the church is, we can't really understand what the sacraments are. There's no way. So what is the church? First of all, what is it not? What, what is she not? She's not, uh, and I believed all these things personally, by the way, at some point in the past. She's not a man-made organization. Or as I like to call it uh, when I was living in Italy, a bunch of old Italian men in red dresses making up rules, right? That's what the secular world believes it is, but it's just not. Because if it was that, it would have been destroyed by now. We would have ground it into the ground because of our own fallenness, our own sinfulness. It's not a system of oppression either. It's not something that manifests in the world so that people can be oppressed, so that uh, arbitrary rules can be imposed on them for the sake of some kind of power that doesn't really exist. Not real. That's how the secular world looks at us, but we shouldn't let that paradigm affect us and how we conceive of who we are and our identity. The, the church, she's the sacrament of the salvation of the world. What does that mean? It means that she's the visible sign in the world that God can save us. She's the visible sign that he can save us. And she's actually the modality of him saving us. She's the conduit of it. So she's the mystical body of Christ. It's God's incarnated power dwelling in the souls of people all over the world in the Holy Spirit. So we're mystically united to each other in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the core of our being like a temple. And Jesus is our head. We're his members. He is our head. It's important to understand that in the church, it's Jesus that institutes the sacraments. It's not these kind of weird little things that people made up like, ah, oh, we're Catholic and we have our weird little rituals and everybody has their weird little rituals based on where they're from and what language they speak and the culture. Jesus brings these things into reality, God incarnate. So if Jesus is our head in this mystical body and we're his members, all we got to do is what he asks us to do. And he asks us to participate in the sacraments. That's God incarnate telling us how the universe works, how we work, and how to win at human life. So specifically then, what are the sacraments in the context of the church? And what are they for? You know me, love the catechism. You never read the catechism? Read it cover to cover. The catechism 
says the sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. Efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. They're the way God himself has made for us to get to him and for him to get to us in time in the fallen world. Remember going back a few sessions, we're literally made for him. We, we need him. Not on a, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have the Jesus feelings all the time kind of level, which it would. On the, we don't even function how we're supposed to function kind of level. That's how we need him. You know, if you're operating a time machine, maybe that looks like a DeLorean, you need fusion power. Okay, maybe a dash of Libyan plutonium. But you can't run that thing off of 10 nine volt batteries that are just duct taped together. Not gonna work, because it's just not designed to work that way. We're the same way. God is the power source that we require to do what we're made to do. Nothing else works. Absolutely nothing else works. As someone famously said, it's a God-shaped hole in our heart. If you've ever tried to put anything else in that slot, in the God slot, you know it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So the sacraments are seven ways for God to basically give us what, it, what we need, his very self in some sort of way. I think of them like oxygen tubes. Okay, so the tube carries something that's uh, totally invisible to the naked eye, can't see it. And yet, every single person on earth needs that thing. So the sacraments are, are seven spiritual tubes or portals that directly lead to the celestial dimension. And if we take them, if we follow them, they get us to the base level of what it takes to transcend the terrestrial realm that we're in right now and go to heaven. How does that happen? It happens precisely through the terrestrial realm. God uses physics to get us to metaphysics. Mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. And they just work. The fancy theological term is they work ex opere operato, which is the Latin way of saying uh, they confer the grace that they signify. So they actually do the thing that it looks like it's doing. So our Protestant brothers and sisters, God love them, generally do not believe anything like this. You know, for instance, you get baptized in a pool by Uncle Joey. That's just a symbol. It, it doesn't actually do anything to you. It's just a symbol out in the world of you saying, I've accepted Jesus, he's my Lord. We believe as Catholics that it actually does something to you. God charges that water with his infinite power and he actually wipes away your sin. Isn't that a better way of living? I think so. I've lived both ways in both types of philosophies and theologies. 
I think it's a way better way of living to believe that God actually does something to you when you worship him and that it's exactly what you need. It's in total accord with, with the design. I just think it's a better way of doing things. That's why I'm not youth pastor Tim with half my head shaved and a $400 t-shirt. Okay, so specifically then, what are the sacraments? Most of us would maybe be able to list them, but let's go through them uh, real fast anyway. First of all is baptism. Baptism is like the gateway that you walk through into the spiritual life. God uses fresh, clear water and a validly ordained priest or deacon uh, to do three things. He's removing the guilt of original sin from your soul. You know, we have our nature going all the way back to our primordial parents who made a terrible mistake in rejecting God, and that messed up the universe and it messed up people, and we carry that nature within it. We carry the original sin. Baptism wipes that away. It, it's the actual sacrifice of Christ actually being the remedy for the biggest problem in humanity. Two, it infuses that little soul, our little soul, with uh, three virtues, what we call the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. Okay, so the ability to believe that God is who he says he is. The ability to look forward, to look ahead to heaven, and the ability to behave like him in the world, to be love incarnate in the world. We need that to be Christians. And thirdly, he puts a stamp on our soul that we call uh, the indelible mark, the indelible mark. There was a, a gal that won tickets to a rock concert and, uh, you know, kind of like a heavy Norwegian death metal kind of a rock concert. I don't think it was like a, a James Taylor kind of a situation. And uh, she got these backstage passes and she went uh, backstage and she was with her friend, got to take a friend with her. And the band was uh, doing satanic worship back there, whatever they do in, the, in their, their rituals. And a bouncer was assigned to the gateway for people who had these special tickets. So he let the friend through, but then he stopped this, this gal who, who won the tickets. And he said, hey, you can't go back there. And uh, she said, why? And he said, you have a mark on your soul. And that mark is incongruous with what's happening back here. That girl was baptized, but her friend wasn't. So the indelible mark, God stamping that little soul and saying, this one is mine, and it's contrary to evil, that's real. When that happens, we are incorporated into the mystical body of Christ. We become one of his members. Then we have confirmation. So confirmation, uh, it confirms and it strengthens that baptismal grace. It seals it in. You know, like there's some kind of epoxies where you got to put one down, then you put another one down. And when you put them together, boom, that sucker's sealed in. Okay, so the Holy Spirit in confirmation, he completes and he perfects what he laid down in the soul in baptism. And his power is totally infinite. You can tell when people are living in alignment with their confirmation grace, when the Holy Spirit is really working in their souls. But you don't have to let them do it, right? You can just kind of keep plugging along and whatnot, even if you're confirmed. That's what I did after my confirmation. I didn't let those graces kick in for years, years and years and years. And 
there are some of us who are going to mass and, and we're trying to do the right things and, and whatnot, and we still haven't let them kick in. So my recommendation is, you know, as we're poking into what does it take to really live the faith, let's do it now. We are totally not guaranteed tomorrow. If there's anything the last year has taught us, we are not guaranteed tomorrow. Let's do it now. So if it can do something for you, might as well let it do something for you. Eucharist is the third sacrament. Um, I've said it before that the Eucharist, it's kind of like God sitting you down and saying, hey, I did your favor. I took a look at uh, everything that's going to come your way this week. And I'm going to give you everything you need to handle all of those things myself in convenient wafer form. Okay, that's the Eucharist. It's, it's Jesus himself coming literally into our bodies and souls and beginning to fix things. He's the solution to every problem. He's the solution to every problem. If there's venial sin in our soul, he wipes it away with his blood. If there's woundedness, he starts to heal it. If there's spiritual evil, he binds it in his name. He's fixing us. It begs the question, why would somebody not want that every week? But for all of that to happen, we have to be in a state where it can happen. Because if we're in serious sin, what we call mortal sin, then Jesus, because he's perfect justice itself, doesn't manifest as healer. He has to manifest as just judge. He just has to. Good doesn't mix with evil. It calls it out, it identifies it, and it rejects it. I lived also in that state for years. Don't recommend it, okay? What I recommend is the fourth sacrament, the sacrament of penance, or what we call uh, confession. I don't know about you, but at this point, I have grown quite accustomed to taking showers. You know, I like the feeling of being physically clean. I like the feeling of going out and traipsing through the woods and getting real dirty too, but knowing that I'm going to come back and get real clean. So to really live our faith, we have to like feeling spiritually clean and have some sort of dissatisfaction with going and traipsing through the woods of sin. Uh, say, uh, you know, you do something wrong. We all do things that are wrong from time to time, every day really on, on some level or, or, or another, really most of us. Um, if our conscience is functioning correctly, um, then we're gonna feel bad. <laughs> we're gonna feel bad, we're gonna feel dirty, you know, like, like something is, is honest. Confession is the way to get clean. It's the spiritual shower. It's really as simple as that. Simple, but costly. You know, it costs the life of the Son of God for us to be able to be there and to be cleaned up by him, to be healed by him. To know that you're forgiven and to not have that evil long-term affect you, uh, I think we should do it at least once a month. I think we should do it at least once a month. I think at a minimum. I'll tell you this, at this point in my journey, I've been going to confession quite frequently for a while now. I started going beyond a certain number of days and I just, I get itchy. You know, it would, it would just be like, you know, you go camping and whatnot. And maybe day five, you're like, you know, I could really, I could really go for a shower right now. We've also talked about general confession. Get it all out, have a turning point in life 
let God conquer those deep, deep things that are in our past that maybe we've never brought to confession. If they're in the dark, they have power over us. We might as well expose them to the light of Christ and then it neutralizes the, the power of that darkness. And as a side effect, we just start to function a lot better. It's just, it's automatic. It's an automatic side effect. So if you want to almost instantaneously increase your spiritual health, general confession. Go and do an examination of your whole life, make an appointment with a priest, get it all out. Then we have anointing of the sick. Anointing of the sick, um, you know, the scriptures say, if there are sick among you, you go get the presbyters, the priests, and have the person anointed with oil, and the oil will save them, and if they've committed any sins, wipe their sins away. Anointing of the sick is basically getting the strength to endure the Ill illness that we're experiencing with holiness. And we can receive it um, for any serious illness, or if we're going into a surgery. I have not received the sacrament myself many times. Generally, we don't receive it many times in our life unless there's some sort of serious reality. But I was going not under the knife, but under the drugs, you know, where they totally knock you out. And um, so I decided to um, approach the priest at mass that day and uh, just ask him for anointing of the sick. As you know, if, you're, if you die while you're under, you want to be ready to rock, ready to go. And there was something maybe serious going on. So, you know, this priest, um, God love him, he didn't have much time, I don't think. So we just kind of did it right there in the narthex of the church. And he put that oil on my head and the power of the Holy Spirit came upon me so poignantly, I will never forget it. I will never forget that as long as I live. It was proof positive in that moment that the sacraments are real and this sacrament is real. The Holy Spirit worked some kind of reality in my soul. So if you need it, go ahead and get it. I know people who have received it and they're in remission from cancer. Um, their spiritual life is significantly improved. It's something that Jesus has given us for the sake of healing. Then we got holy orders. So holy orders is being ordained. It's basically um, an ontological, a, a, a spiritual configuration of your soul to Christ the head. So it's something that he bestowed uh, upon the apostles and they bestowed it upon bishops and priests going down through the ages, through the power of the Holy Spirit. What's going on is that the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands is giving the person the ability to capacitate the power of God um, in a way that they can't without the grace of ordination. Kind of like being the ambassador to a country. It's power, but it's not power to wield, if that makes sense. It's power to serve, to, to become the least, to, to put um, all others ahead of yourself. So certain groups that are um, sort of very vocal about, we want this ordination, we want that type of thing and do this same thing, they're not in a, in a mind frame of you're being ordained to become like Christ who put his garments aside, got down on the ground and washed the feet of the disciples, something a slave would do. That's what you're ordained for. 
And in the midst of that grace, you are getting the ability to capacitate the things that Christ and the disciples did, like take ordinary bread and ordinary wine and bring about the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Not everybody's called to it, obviously, okay? But uh, young men, if you are called to it, I'll tell you this, there's nothing in the world I would trade for it. There's nothing in the world. I can't even communicate what it's like. It's being pulled into the intimate embrace of God in a way that's very difficult to communicate. It's extremely hard. It's extremely difficult in and of itself. But in the midst of that, God gives you the power to do it. This is why St. Paul said, I boast in my weaknesses, right? Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong then God has to give me the power to do it because I can do it myself. That's the priesthood, okay? Especially in a sacramental reality. And finally, matrimony. This is something that we experience a lot of here um, at St. Patrick's, okay? A man and a woman entering into a covenant with God. That's what matrimony is. They're entering into a covenant with God that they're gonna make it their job their vocation, their calling to get each other to heaven and to get their kids to heaven should God give them that blessing. There's not frustration or, or, or a problem that can pop up in your life. There's no frustration, no problem that can compare to that goal. So in a healthy marriage where that covenant is sealed by the Holy Spirit and you become one flesh, there should be the attitude of, you know what? You're worth more to me than being right about something silly. One of the healthiest couples I know that I've mentioned it multiple times before, but when they get into an argument, inevitably one of them says, you know what? The other one says, what? And they say, uh, it's your turn to be right this time. And the argument is over. Because that communicates you're worth more to me then whatever the content is of this particular thing we're arguing about, if it's something that's not connected to your salvation, right? We get in little spats about all kinds of things. The person is always more important. The person is always more important, okay? So we have in our church an incredible spiritual advantage. We just have an incredible spiritual advantage as Catholics by having the sacraments. Most of us uh, don't use them to their fullest potential. So this is my recommendation in this session, session five, to begin as we're living the faith, start thinking about how am I not using the sacraments in my life to their fullest potential? How am I not participating in them in a way that intimately connects me to God and actually fills me with life and heals me. Because if we use them well, that's living the faith. That's living the faith in the way that Jesus himself designed and instituted. And if we really live our faith, we become who we actually are. We become saints. With that, we will open it up to a time of questions now, if anybody has any questions. 
Uh, could you speak briefly about receiving baptism in the Holy Spirit and how that relates to uh, the sacrament of baptism? That's a good question. So um, I essentially owe my existence to this concept of baptism in the Holy Spirit. My parents met in something called the Catholic Charismatic Renewal. Catholic Charismatic Renewal was a movement in the church in the 70s and 80s and to a certain degree, uh, the 90s, that uh, essentially was just a group of people that believed that uh, God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. So we like to put them in this kind of little box. It's very like neat, you know, little box. This is, this is how you can function God. But in reality, you can do whatever he wants, right? Provided it's not evil because he's goodness itself. He can't participate in the opposite of himself. And so um, this group of people, they, they kind of had a renewal. And in the renewal, they would pray for something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So if you're already baptized, if you're a fully initiated uh, member of the church, people would come around you, lay hands on you, and uh, pray that the Holy Spirit fill you in a particular way. Now, our uh, solid Catholic theological understanding of this is essentially what's happening is um, people are interceding for you, and you're personally making the internal decision that you're actually going to use the grace of the Holy Spirit in, that you got in your baptism and your confirmation. It's, it's kicking in. It's kicking in in a way that it, it can even manifest in some uh, giftedness. Now, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the charismatic gifts, are not things we can ask for. They're just things that are sort of gratuitously bestowed upon us if God should uh, want that. So uh, there's a bunch of them, but a, a concrete example that happens frequently is healing. You know, people are actually being healed of things. Um, or gifts of knowledge, knowing things that they can't know on a natural level. I have been with priests before. I wish I had this gift. It'd be super, super cool. But I've been with priests before that can just kind of know what's going on with you without you telling them. You know, that's pretty neat. Um, St. John Vianney had that gift. Uh, he could read your soul. It's called the reading of soul. So, um, you know, the, the, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, if you will, is really, I think, in a solid Catholic understanding, just coming to the point where you're going to actually use your baptismal graces. And maybe they manifest in some sort of way that is highly positive for the sake of your salvation and other people's salvation. Curious how Protestants experience grace without the sacrament of confession, and do they often unknowingly live in a state of mortal sin? Well, the reality is a huge percentage of the population lives in a state of mortal sin um, without being fully aware of, of what that is, right? So how do Protestants experience grace? Well, here's how I think about it. Um, the experience a grace, I think, in a way that is in a particular mode even more gratuitous than what Catholics experience. And I think it's more gratuitous because if it wasn't, then they wouldn't be getting anything at all, really. If you're rejecting the church, capital C, and you're rejecting the seven ways that God himself has designed for grace to get to you, you're kind of in a pickle, right? So, Protestants experience grace in some sort of way that, that God just gratuitously gives them at least what they need for salvation should they desire that. How that actually plays out in the afterlife, 
you know, in sort of a purgatory, a purgatory sense in a purgative way. We don't know. We don't know how that goes. But it's possible for them and it's really possible for, for anybody and Catholics to be walking around in a state of moral sin and uh, maybe not be fully aware of it. Uh, why do you think confirmation tends to, quote unquote, not work very well for the people who get it? What does it look like to let those graces manifest in our life? Okay, well, this is, this is a good question. Statistically, about 80-some percent of the kids, the youth who are getting confirmed these days, and we start our youth confirmation class tomorrow morning here at St. Patrick's, about, I think it's 84% something, leave the church. They just straight up leave the church at some point. That's shocking. That's a shocking statistic. And so... Um, I think one of the reasons it doesn't quote unquote work is that it's part of a larger issue. And the larger issue is that since the 60s, to a certain degree, our ability to communicate the faith to a different generation has degraded like uranium. It's just gone down and down and down and down and down until the faith in many ways and in many circles and in many churches is so watered down that it bears very little resemblance to itself and oftentimes is communicated in a way where it's not a necessity. And so it's sort of, it's connected to the question of how far can you water it down before it's not itself anymore? And I think catechetically, in terms of teaching the faith and passing on the faith, we've done that with all the sacraments. And so confirmation is part of that. How do you actually make it work and kick in in your life? It starts with the choice to do that, to acknowledge that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've been baptized, confirmed, First Communion. He dwells inside of us, literally. We're his temple. We're the temple of God. And to start trying to interact with him. You know, when was the last time most of us prayed uh, the Veni Creator Spiritus? You know, when was the last time we prayed any prayer specifically to the Holy Spirit in a consistent way? It begins with saying, Holy Spirit, I believe you exist. I believe you're in my soul. You're dwelling in me as a temple. Um, I want you to manifest in my life. I don't want there to be any other spirit that has any influence on me or manifest in my life. I only want you to manifest in my life. The spirit of Christ, the spirit of our Father in heaven. Then things start to happen. We, we, we take seriously the, the past four sessions and we start getting rid of the obstacles and whatnot in our life. And then, then things start to happen. The Holy Spirit starts to grow. I'm a convert, so maybe I don't understand mortal sin. What does it mean? Um, how can uh, many people live in a state of mortal sin and not be aware? So um, there's three parts to a human act. So in order for, for uh, a human to do something and it be good or bad, it has to be considered a human act. So breathing is not a human act because it's just happening, even though humans breathe. Okay. A human act involves being rationally conscious. And every human act has three elements to it. You have the object, you have the thing you're actually choosing. I choose to pick up this glass and drink it. Okay, that's the object. I have the intention what I mean when I'm doing it, I'm thirsty. So I'm picking it up. 
and I have the circumstances, everything that morally impinges on it, okay? Now, just for sake of example, say I was actually locked in this room with 10 other people, okay? And, a, and there was a family in there and there were some kids that needed something to drink. I would interpret that as a moral obligation to give them the coconut water rather than for me to drink it because the circumstances dictate such a thing, okay? Object, the thing itself, intention, what you mean when you're doing it, and the circumstances, everything that's morally relevant around it. In order to have a mortal sin, you have to um, select something that is intrinsically evil. The object is intrinsically evil. Your intention when you do it has to be evil and the circumstances have to be evil. So you have to fully know it. It's gotta be something bad, bad object. You gotta fully know it's bad and you have to move your will, you have to choose it. When you have those things line up, you have a mortal sin. You have something that can kill you because you're intentionally moving yourself out of alignment with goodness and God is goodness itself. And so to disintegrate from him disintegrates you from your very nature, your human nature, and from the fabric of reality itself. It's the ultimate shooting yourself in the foot. Okay, so if you choose that fully, then you're in a very dark state. And there's tons of people walking around that are selecting evil things with full knowledge and full consent of their will. And they do not care. Those people are in a state of moral sin. But if you went up to them with a microphone and said, hey, are you in a state of moral sin? You'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. So it can happen. Uh, when teaching slash speaking with someone who is baptized Catholic, but never really practiced it or owned it for themselves, is it more appropriate, whether practically or theologically, to speak to them like a Catholic or as a non-Catholic? My personal opinion is non-Catholic because I look at my own experience and obviously, you know, I don't want to extrapolate too much from, from subjectivism, from, from what I've experienced. But um, for all intensive purposes, I wasn't Catholic, even though I had all the sacraments of initiation, baptism, Eucharist, confirmation. You know, if you had walked up to me and asked me almost any question about the church, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> no clue at all. Okay. And so, and in fact, most of my theology, anything connected to Christ or God was Protestant in nature, but I wouldn't be able to articulate that to you. So I think a lot of people are in that mode where either they're, uh, they're Catholic. Okay. They have the sacraments of initiation and they're thinking about their faith either in a way that's Catholic, but wrong, Protestant or non-Christian. So there's like the bent side of Catholicism that's all about the self and it's more like the new age movement. And there's Protestantism, which has 36,000 different flavors. And then there's just straight being a non-Christian. More of the, I'm more spiritual than, than religious. I, I sit under trees and I absorb their energy kind of a thing. Okay. And I love trees. Okay. I'm the biggest lover of trees. I know, I think nothing against trees. But I'm just saying. So I think it's better to, to, to speak as a non-Catholic because uh, especially in today's world, we have to uh, begin with the assumption 
that uh, if we meet another Catholic, they might not even know what that means. And so we're in a great position to be able to, to help them and to bring them deeper in the faith. I remember, you know, in my Protestant theology growing up, um, I did not believe in the Eucharist. We did not believe in the Eucharist really as a family, um, that it was really the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus for real. Uh, we thought it was more symbolic, kind of like um, Anglicans or Lutherans or something. And uh, I remember the first time I actually learned what the church taught about the Eucharist and saw the beautiful cohesiveness of it and maybe read John chapter six in Greek. And uh, I remember being in mass and receiving the Eucharist and the thought hit me, what if this isn't symbolic? What if this is actually real? And in that moment, the grace of that Eucharist activated maybe for the first time in my life and my head almost exploded. I mean, I couldn't even capacitate what was going on. It's the God of the universe inside of your body. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a longer way of saying, if we can help people get to that point, we've done our job. We've done our job as Christians. Just to help them experience what the sacraments are, what the church is. What are some practical steps parents can take um, who have children and want to help them not become one of the 84% who leave the church. This is a tough one. The biggest thing, live it yourself. If you're living it, if, if Jesus is real and you are having intimate daily contact with him and he is really the Lord of your life and you're participating in the, in the sacraments to the extent that it's possible and appropriate and you're deriving divine life, from those things. Kids see that. They soak it up like a sponge. They recognize like, hey, mom, dad, you know, they're actually better when they're doing these things. And that clicks the little switch in their head. Without that, if you grow up with like, yeah, we go to, I know so many families where it's like, mom might have some kind of faith. She's trying to hold, hold everybody together. Dad doesn't care. He could be, you know, sitting in the, in the waiting room of an orthodontist. And he's just kind of, there's not, nothing going on, not making the responses, you know, just, just there with his hands. That has a huge impact on the kids. That has a huge impact on the kids. And in terms of they continue um, living the faith. So to prevent them from leaving, show them what it's like to stay. Live the grace that's there, and they will stay. Or they'll do what I did, go absolutely insane, require supernatural intervention, and then come back. What about the same issues with our adult children who have hopefully temporarily left the faith? Well, that's trickier, right? Because you can do whatever you want when you're an adult. Um, so when it gets into that mode, if the kids have left the faith and they're adults, then you're in the mode of intercession. You're in the St. Monica mode. You know, Augustine was a very intelligent man using his intelligence to not be a Christian. 
And through St. Monica's intercession, he became one of the greatest people to ever live. Certainly one of the greatest saints to ever live. So your mode is intercession. I know when I was far from our Lord and his church living a life of dissipation, my mother prayed for me every day at three, no matter how sick she was, and she was very sick. Rosary, Divine Mercy Chaplain. Heal that kid, save him, bring him back. May your will be done for him. And sure enough, the grace of God manifested so poignantly to me <laughs> that I can't deny it. It would be violating my conscience to, to deny it. Our Lord knows the exact moment and the exact way in which that grace would be most efficacious in their life to bring them back. Pray that that happen and never, ever stop. St. Monica prayed for 10 years. 10 years is a long time. How do you talk about the power of the sacraments with people who don't know slash believe in the sacraments? I think um, a historical perspective is helpful. You know, we, we should know uh, this, obviously these talks are very light intros to these things. You can take an entire college level, master's level course on the sacraments, right? And not get to even half of it, okay? So it's a very deep, rich and beautiful reality. If we know the history, if we can actually say um, something concrete about Christ instituting a sacrament, that starts to get people thinking, especially if they're Christians. For instance, you've heard me mention it before from the pulpit. If you read John chapter six in Greek, it sounds a lot different than it does in English. You know, when, when people start contesting him, and I think it's in verse 53, some 52, 53, 54, somewhere in there, when they start actually contesting and say, how can this guy give us his flesh to eat? That sounds crazy. You know, you're like cannibals or something. He doubles down and the verb for eat changes to chew. And he says, unless you chew my flesh in your mouth, you have no life within you. How would you know Jesus doubled down like that if you're reading in English? Because in English, it just says eat, 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 eat. Also, the, the verb tenses in Greek at the Last Supper in proximate command form, are, he's commanding these men around him to do what he's doing. And he's being very, very literal about it. There's no like figurative language in there. So <clears throat> to be able to kind of have a basic understanding of that with all the sacraments, historically, scripturally, um, it gives us a nice place to begin to uh, talk to people about where they come from, and what they do, why they exist. Well, we're just at about um, the eight o'clock hour. So uh, thank you very much for, for joining me as always. And uh, let's end with a prayer and blessing. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask for all of the graces to be able to pray to you in an efficacious way, especially in the way that you have chosen for us through the sacraments, we ask for that grace to come and dwell in our hearts even now that the Holy Spirit given to us in baptism and confirmation would activate and would set our heart on fire for you, for prayer, for the accomplishment of your will. May you bless all of those gathered here in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.